This morning we're going to talk about who are the churches of Christ. I want to bring up two examples that are directly related to this thinking about churches of Christ uh, in general. Uh, one, the song that we sang at the very beginning, Our God, He is Alive. Uh, at the initial beginning, the slides were not advancing as we're used to, but many of us were singing the song anyway. Because for years, churches of Christ have been known for singing, Our God, He is Alive. And even though I think we stumbled a little bit as I tried to recall them, I couldn't remember when he sang that song last year, but it still came back. And I could tell with others it came back because that song has been associated with churches of Christ. Also last week when Michael was here, he talked about moving to Las Vegas and how he's visited different churches of Christ while he was there. When you've driven around, you've seen different buildings perhaps that have churches of Christ on it. Or when you've done an internet search on churches of Christ, you found a host of different churches, sometimes in one city. Maybe you've gone to Wikipedia. You've learned about churches of Christ in general. You find there's a di divergence of views at times. There's been divisions at times, but there's also been great unity around certain principles. And I thought in this last lesson, simply to talk about in a condensed form, who are the churches of Christ? And I tried to prepare this lesson from the standpoint of not, I have 13 lessons to preach on it, but instead I have about 30 minutes, and that's what I'm going to keep myself to, to kind of explain to someone who has no idea what churches of Christ are about or what they should be about, how to approach uh, simply looking at this. Um, I remember years ago growing up, uh, churches would have a track rack in the back. Remember, Barbara? A rack in the back of all these little booklets. And some of the little booklets were entitled, What is the Church of Christ? Or Who is the Church of Christ? It should have been. And you had a little booklet that was written by a human being that would explain to you kind of what they're about. Um, I remember one specifically, man, was holding a Bible, and it said, Introducing the Church of Christ. And maybe that wasn't the best way to present it, but at the time it would give someone an overview at least of what to expect when they came into a Church of Christ church service and what they would expect to be some fundamental beliefs of the members there. Much has changed over time for the better, uh, much has not changed for the better, or much, much has changed, I should say, but not for the better. But we're going to try to look at, I think, four principles as you evaluate your own presence here. Uh, Audrina, she mentioned visiting to different churches, but she chose here. Um, and I hope that's, I think it's for a good reason, and we're thankful for that. But not all churches of Christ are the same, but there is a great commonality. Uh, and there's four things that I think stand out as far as if you're to try to figure out what is a church of Christ, or at least what it should be, here are the four things that stand out uh, biblically. First of all, a church of Christ is made up of Christians. Now, you might say, well, that's overly fundamental. It is true, but sometimes this point is missed. Um, a church of Christ, or any church that seeks to follow the Bible, is fundamentally people. In the Bible, a church is never a building. It's never the meeting place. It's never the facility, whether it's owned by the church or it's rented. The church is never a building. So to say, hey, that's a beautiful church over there, the only way to be proper about that biblically is if you see people <laughs> that are all beautiful that are going into a building. The church biblically is always people. It's not a corporation. It's not even an institution. Though I remember language growing up, preachers would talk about the institution of the church. Well, I understood what they were saying, I think, but over time I understood that, well, institution sounds a little too formal. 
Because it's getting away from the idea of church simply being people. Uh, churches of Christ are not a franchise. It's not like there's a set cookie-cutter mold for everyone, uh, and you're going to experience the same thing everywhere you go, like going to Subway or something like that. It's not a denomination. Churches of Christ um, are not directly, at least, part of larger churches. We'll talk a little bit later on about how people that comprised Churches of Christ when they started in the late 1800s broke away from denominations because they wanted to go back to the idea of just following the Bible and seek to follow the Bible and be a church just like churches in the New Testament. That was the goal. So Churches of Christ have roots, if you go way back to churches where people left mainly, um, or were later on simply converted to this way of looking at Christianity in its truest and purest form, but it's not a break-off. There's no headquarters, there's no hierarchy, there's not a mother church, if you will, that tells us what to do or gives us directive. Uh, there are influential preachers, or some churches are influential that preachers sometimes look to, but they're independent. We'll see that in just a minute. But they're fundamentally made up of Christians, just like we see in Acts chapter 2. Uh, verse 42, this is right after 3,000 were baptized of Luke records in his history of early Christianity, the book of Acts, he says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at many wonders, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who has need. Verse 46. Every day they continued meeting together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together uh, with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. There's many things we've looked at in the different lessons. I just want to highlight, first of all, this was the beginning of the church. The 3,000 here that were baptized were the very first church, the first people saved in the way that Jesus instructed. And the apostles carried on his teaching. And the church carries on their teaching. It talks also about these people that were, that were saved were part of this church. But it just kind of coincidentally mentions that they were meeting in the temple courts. That was just the place they could gather. They didn't say, hey, we have to buy a building or we need to rent a facility. They were just meeting where they could. Their emphasis was simply they were saved individuals, they were people. And any view of churches of Christ, it gets beyond, these are simply people that belong to God and are in a saved relationship. If it becomes something more than that, where we try to model some uh, pattern that is not biblical, or we try to follow what other churches are doing, or we try to follow the mold of society, or we simply make getting more people here our priority rather than bringing them to Christ in a saved relationship, we're getting away from what a church of Christ should be. A church of Christ always emphasized the people. Look at Acts chapter 11 now. Here's the first time uh, we find people that were saved being called Christians. <coughs> Excuse me, the word Christian appears three times in the New Testament. Twice in Acts, Acts 11 uh, verse 26, we're going to look at Acts 26, verse 28, and also in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. 
Again, Luke is writing here. He's a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul and others who are teaching this message of Christianity. And he makes observations by the Lord's Spirit as the Spirit of God is helping him record these words. He makes this observation about the identity of people that belong to these churches. Verse 25, beginning, Acts 11. It says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's going to be Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. Met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Notice here that Christians made up the church. If someone was in Christ, they had repented of their sins, they believed the gospel message that Jesus was the Son of God who died for their sins, they'd repented and changed their life and baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of sins, they had become saved. They also had became Christians. The only people referred to in the New Testament as Christians were saved people. So they're making up these early churches, saved people that met in these different locations. Christians, again, are saved, so churches are comprised of saved people. Now, they may have visitors at times that may not know anything about God. They just kind of come into the assembly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about that. Uh, there might be guests. There might be long-term guests who, for maybe years, are still grappling with the truths of Christianity. They may not believe fully, but they are still wanting to learn. Like the uh, man Apollos in the book of Acts, he wanted to learn more. And Aquila and Priscilla took him aside. But for those who are actually saved and part of the church, they are the only ones that are really called Christians. It's not just, just anyone that's favorably disposed or just someone that's there on a Sunday. The people that are part of the church are simply Christians in this saved relationship. You say, well, why does this matter? Why does this matter? It matters because we have to understand our identity and who we are. That we're not just a group of people that have an affection for Christ or a strong feeling about Him or a casual interest. We're people that have been brought to together by the saving blood of Christ and share this very strong bond that overcomes any racial differences, any class differences. And you think about our being here now. We, wouldn't even be, we probably would not even know each other if it was not for this bond through Jesus Christ. And look how diverse we are. We have this common bond of Jesus Christ running through our spiritual veins that brings us together, not just an interest in Christianity and we're casually gathered. So churches of Christ in the New Testament and the way they should be today are comprised of Christians who have been saved the way the New Testament teaches. Here's the second distinctive feature of churches of Christ, biblically and the way it should be today. A church of Christ is composed of rescued people. Did we lose our... There it comes. Okay, Nathaniel was just working with it creatively. Churches of Christ are composed of rescued people. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1. There are two places in particular. Galatians 1, we'll just look there. Then there's Colossians 1 and Romans 7 that each refer to the fact that God rescued us. Now that's the same thing as He saved us. And when I emphasize the idea he rescued us, I'm not trying to make any difference between the two. But I almost think today that the idea of us being rescued is probably more effective sometimes. Because sometimes that word saved, uh, people outside of the church, 
and sometimes even within the church, kind of mockingly refer to that because sometimes it can sound or the way it's said almost like it's a holier-than-thou thing. That's not the biblical point, and we're not wrong to say that we're saved, but I think sometimes today the word rescued might capture our identity better for us and for others. But look how Paul describes the Christians here that were part of local churches of Christ in a region called Galatia, which was a few hundred miles away from the city of Jerusalem in what we call the Greco-Roman world. Look how he begins a letter that would be spread among all these different churches of Christ in these areas. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not with a human commission, nor by human authority, but by Jesus Christ, the God and Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. Verse 2, right at the end. To the churches in Galatia. This is a region, and there's multiple ones. Verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. To what? Rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. First of all, notice verse 1. Paul identifies himself as an apostle. An apostle was someone that was directly commissioned by Jesus himself to carry on the message of Jesus Christ. There were 13, which includes the apostle Paul. Acts 2 said they continued in the apostles' teaching. Here Paul is appealing to that authority and says, I'm writing to you as an apostle. He's writing to them as churches, but he describes them in verse 4 as people who've been rescued by the blood of Christ. That's the same as being saved. But that idea of rescued, remember the picture you saw earlier, you'll see in just a moment, the picture of people all on a boat that uh, apparently have been rescued from a bigger ship, they have uh, life preservers on. I thought that really captures us spiritually. We're people that were drowning or would have drowned. Because of our own sins, we would have sunk underneath the weight of them. But Jesus came as the great ship to rescue us. We had to reach out, though, and get onto the lifeboat. Uh, We had to be in the place where God does His work. That is baptism, to have our sins washed away. But we're still saved. Notice here, they're already saved. They're in another boat, but they have their life preservers on. They're staying with the group that saved them. And with us, we're staying with the one who saved us. Uh, That is Jesus. Why is this important to know? It's important to know because many times, those who are saved, the longer they've been saved, can easily develop a holier-than-thou mentality. As your life does get cleaned up, as we take on the nature of our Savior Jesus. Sometimes it's easier to, it's easy to be judgmental. Or as we try to follow the New Testament as Christ teaches us, when we see others not doing it, it's easy to be critical. Um, it's easy if your team's the greatest, the Warriors, to be critical of other teams. Uh, things like that. We do that spiritually as well. But not to be part of our nature as Christians to do that spiritually. We are simply rescued people. We're saved, but we're not better than other people. We're not smarter. And we're not to see ourselves in some way where we spiritually turn up our nose at other people. 
We are simply people that have been saved just like in this picture. And we want others to be saved as well. And I think probably the outside world would see us better if we saw ourselves more humbly as rescued people. If we ever give off a sense that, well, you're not part of the church. Or, you need to become part of the church. And we make it sound a little snobby. (laughs) Or that we think we're better. If it comes across that way, even though we don't mean it that way, that's not a good thing. And that's why I tend towards emphasizing the idea of us being rescued. It's also important to understand that we're rescued as a church when we assemble. We're a bunch of rescued people, like on this boat, all gathering together to share our rescued story, our experience, and to make sure we stay rescued by staying with Jesus. We're not a social club. Even though we're friends with each other, we enjoy laughter, we enjoy sharing our lives, we need to see the biggest bond is that in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we probably could find people that we might identify with even better. But through Jesus Christ, we identify most closely with each other. We're not a rotary group. We're not a Kiwanis club. We're not a Lions club. Uh, Those groups all have their important role in our society. They do a lot of great service works. But the church is not to be seen as that, to provide services of entertainment or uh, even services just doing good things in the community, even though those are great as part of our individual lives and we might do some of those things in some ways as a church, our fundamental identity is shaped by our bringing people to Jesus through our personal relationship with them. We're trying to rescue people who are still treading water and trying to stay afloat by themselves and thinking they will all be all right in the end if they just keep treading water. We're trying to tell them, put the life preserver on. You're not going to make it just trying to tread water and always seeing ultimately that's what we're trying to do and they might be resistant and that's why we have to be friends with them first they might be frustrated with spiritual experiences they've had in the past with other churches but we still have to see them as people treading water that will not make it unless they become rescued like we but we are not better than them um, simply because we've been rescued we're simply rescued people Paul says the same thing in Colossians and uh, Romans 7. Number three, churches of Christ are local churches committed to restoration principles. Let me just say that again, kind of let that sink in a little bit, because we're going to explain what that means in just a moment. Churches of Christ are local churches. That means they're these groups and places all over the world committed to restoration principles. The Bible talks about the church in two different ways. First of all, it talks about the church in a universal sense. A lot of times the Apostle Paul and Peter in their writing will just talk about the church. And they're talking about the church including every single individual that's ever been saved, going all the way back to Acts 2 to this very present hour. That's the universal sense of the church. So when you're reading your Bible or you're hearing it taught, sometimes you're going to see that that's the sense the apostles are using the word. Or when Jesus said, upon this rock, in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He's talking about this universal sense of all believers that will come into relationship with him. But as those people live on this earth, they will gather together in small communities that could simply be described as local churches. Or like we saw earlier, Galatians 1, the churches of Galatia, or there's Ephesus, 
Thessalonica, these different places, Philippi, where these letters were written to, were local churches. Well, that was the beginning. That's the way it looks in the New Testament, that you have these local churches following Christ. <clears throat> but a lot has happened over 2,000 years. A lot has happened to churches over 2,000 years. And even as the end of the New Testament, you see the, the apostles warning about digression. And even early on, the book of Galatians, Paul is having to address people that were not teaching the full truth of the gospel message. And it's always been a battle to make sure just the apostles' teaching is followed. And as you look over time, the digression that the apostles tried to stop by teaching continued, though there were always some that were faithful to the Lord. Eventually, the Catholic Church would develop, which had major digressions from biblical teaching, starting with the idea of having a pope, a, a representative Christ on the earth, to other digressions that eventually uh, people breaking away from the uh, religion of Catholicism and starting denominations, which still had problems of trying to follow other things other than just the Bible. They would have separate creeds, they'd have special books they would follow in addition to the Bible. But in the late 1800s, people within those churches said, hey, we're doing a lot of good things and there's a lot of things that are right, but we need to be unified. Because at the time there were charismatic churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, a host of different churches, and a lot of people within those churches said, why don't we just unify around this idea of following the Bible and the Bible alone and continuing to study it to come to a unified conclusion about what we ought to do. And there are individuals such as Alexander Campbell and a man by the name of Barton Stone who kind of led this mo movement of let's not try to divide anymore, but instead let's try to unify around the Bible and let's just look at the book of Acts and other books and see what were early Christians doing? What were they doing? And let's just try to do the same and get rid of anything that just kind of crept into our identity over time. Sometimes our principal has to do that at school. <laughs> all kinds of problems we've had at the beginning of the year with different groups that are affiliated with different uh, bad groups on the street. And kids come into school wearing different colors uh, in identifying themselves by the colors they wear and a lot of fights kind of breaking out. And our principal got up the other day and said, hey, we, our school mascot is Bearcats, or Bearcats. We are Bearcats first. Kind of funny animal, uh, but it's a real one. We are Bearcats first, and our only colors are orange and black. She didn't have to say, hey, no more reds and blues. Those are the colors we're having to deal with. They're getting in fights. She said, we're just orange and black. Those are our school colors. And that's kind of what these restoration people were saying back in the late 1800s. Let's just go with what we know are our true colors. Following the Bible, doing just what early Christians did, not bringing on a bunch of extra stuff that we want to do or that other churches do. Let's just get back to the Bible. So it was a big restoration or back to the Bible movement. It had a lot of great ideas, but also flaws. Great ideals, but also flaws. Let's look at the ideals first. Acts chapter 17. This is a lofty principle to go back to the Bible. Just as for our principle in a big assembly to say, we are just 
<clears throat> excuse me, we're just orange and black. That's our school colors. We're just bear cats. We're not all these other nefarious groups aligning themselves on campus. It's a lofty thing to say, we're just going to follow the Bible. Easier said than done. When you have a culture that may be going a different direction, when you have attitudes and other ways of looking at things, it's hard to let that prevail. But here's the principle captured in one scene, Acts chapter 17. Here, Luke describes a group of people in a city called Berea. And he talks about their attitude towards following the apostles' teaching. And this has kind of been the attitude of churches of Christ over the years, even if they haven't always followed it. It's been kind of what we know we should follow. Verse 10, beginning, Acts 17. Luke writes, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Notice why. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was what? True. Many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. <clears throat> so here, Luke does one of these pauses as he's writing the early history of Christianity by the Spirit of God. He says, wait a minute, there's a group that stood out, these Bereans. They showed more devotion than people in this other city, Thessalonica. Well, what did they show? It says, first, they received the message with great eagerness. They wanted to hear just what God had to teach them. Not what was a philosophy of the time, not what was the number one bestseller on the Amazon bestseller list or whatever their equivalent was. They just wanted to hear what God had to say. And they were eager to hear that. They didn't want a bunch of other stuff thrown in. We just want to hear what God wants us to know. They were eager, it says. And then if they weren't sure about it, what did they do? It says they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They were constantly studying, examining. They were not being argumentative. They weren't trying to cause division. They weren't trying to split into different churches. They just wanted to see what Paul really said, even if they disagreed at moments over what that was. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. And then it says many of them believed. That should be the spirit and identity of churches of Christ. Save people trying to follow Christ as closely as they can. Not to be perfectionist. God is not looking for people that have to get everything right and are real uptight about it all the time and get in arguments for the sake of getting arguments because they think they're right. That's not what God's looking for. But He's looking for people that want to follow Him closely. That when He says, hey, you need to change this or I want you to do this, they are eager to do that just like the Bereans were. And that's what started in the Restoration Movement in the late 1800s. People coming out of denominations and out of Catholicism saying, let's just get back to the Bible. And whatever God says Christians are to be, and whatever God says churches are to be, we're going to look in our Bibles. We're going to talk about it. We may not see it the same way. We may not agree, and it may be a long time as we work it. But we're going to try to find things of commonality, 
So they agreed on what the assemblies ought to have. It ought to have singing, because early Christians sang. It ought to have teaching. It ought to have prayers, things we looked at in a previous lesson. And they said, let's just do those things. We know those are in the Bible. And churches of Christ started in that time in this desire to have an identity shaped by the New Testament. It's a great idea, but also the movement had flaws. At this time, there was great racism in our country. And even after the emancipation of slaves, there were painful, awful racial divisions within our country that should have been addressed and should have been part of the restoration. It wasn't just getting the worship assembly the way it should be. It, would be, it should be treating people of different skin color the way they ought to be treated and not segregating groups in the Jim Crow laws of the South and during uh, the 1950s, all the way up to the 50s and 60s. And even today, it's still a struggle. So this restoration is an ongoing process that's going to have to sometimes uncover ugly areas where the church has not been restorative, where it's not done its job to bring everything back because racism was a problem in the first century between the Jewish and Greek believers, but Paul went at it tooth and nail. He didn't tolerate it at all. In fact, the majority of one-topic teaching in the New Testament is addressing racial divisions, whether it be in Acts 6, the Hebrew widows um, make, being taken care of, but yet the Grecian widows were not. Problems of people dividing 1 Corinthians. Churches of Christ today need to address it with the same fervor. And that was not done in the 50s and the 60s or the 40s or 30s. And that's a sin. So churches of Christ don't have everything right. But they have a priceless ideal. Of, Let's just follow the Bible and go whichever way it goes. If it addresses something we're doing that's wrong and ugly, let it do its work. Open heart surgery is always being done if you're in Christ. If it affirms we're doing something right, that's a great thing. But churches of Christ are always committed to following Christ and Him alone, and the Bible is their sole guide in what the apostles taught. That's the restoration principle, and that's a unifying thing that should be the feature of churches of Christ today. For many, it is. But sadly, for many churches of Christ, it never was. And it's not today. That's why sometimes you just have to do a lot of searching, and you have to visit a lot of churches of Christ. To see, are they holding to the New Testament? Do they emphasize biblical conversion in, in their assemblies? Do they reflect what we see early Christians doing? doesn't mean you write them off completely if they're not. Or you can't be there. doesn't mean that. But just we're searching for this idea being lived out. Number four, last one. Churches of Christ are independent, self-governing, and committed to growth. These are just three features that I think enhance this idea of being able to go back to the Bible. There are things that we see in the New Testament. Go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. These are things we see in the New Testament about churches that allow them to be what God wants them to be and allow them to address their problems without outside interference, without majority groups telling them, no, you can't make these changes because this is what you got to do and things like that. This is what allows... Churches of Christ to truly follow Christ. First of all, being independent. 
I want to begin reading 1 Peter chapter 5. This is, I think, a, a representative text of what we find in the New Testament as far as how churches were addressed. Let's begin reading. I'll stop at uh, verse 5 and make comment about being us being independent and self-governed. Verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock, which is under your care. Watching out for them, not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble and depressed. I want to just notice two things here. <clears throat> First of all, that elders are being addressed. We find in 1 Timothy, the book of Titus, in the book of Acts, we see this consistent pattern of these local churches seeking to have elders. Elders were older men that met certain character qualifications. And you see those in Titus and also in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That they were to be the ones that had the Christ-like oversight of the churches. And in Acts, we find that Paul sought to appoint elders, even in the earliest of churches, as long as they were qualified. You don't find one church that was really big telling small churches what to do. You don't find other churches getting in each other's business. You just had these independent, self-governed, if you will, churches that were to have elders and ideally deacons as well if they could find a qualified plurality. There was never one elder over the church. It always was a plurality where two or more men that were qualified would serve to oversee the group, not lord it over, as Peter says, not boss it around, but simply oversee it. And not all churches had elders, especially at the beginning. Not all churches today do, especially if they're small like us. We see in Acts chapter 6, uh, small groups within a church can kind of take on leadership roles. They're not elders, but they can help in the decision-making process, and we use our trustees in that way here. Some churches have congregational meetings, and the whole church decides together, and they don't use their trustees as much as we do. But churches have freedom, if they don't have elders, to follow some kind of model that mirrors what they see in the New Testament, and that Acts 6 model is it. But if a church does have elders, and they always seek to have them, the elders are the ones that oversee that particular local church, whether it be in San Francisco or Daly City or San Bruno, wherever the church is, the elders are just over that church. There's no presiding eldership that's over a region or an area where they control it. That's not a biblical model. So part of the restoration principle of the late 1800s is let's just have local elders over each church. Each church kind of does exactly what we find in the New Testament which means they're self-governed. No, governed. no church has the right to tell us what to do outside of ourselves. Only the New Testament, with Jesus Christ as our head. 
So even if that church is bigger and they're influential and they have a lot of really high-educated elders, they can't come in and say, here's what you're going to do or we're taking over. New Testament churches were independent and so were we to be. Uh, the word that used to be used a long time ago was autonomous. Each church is autonomous. Now, we use that today with cars, right? We have autonomous self-driving cars. That's a great ideal, right? It'd be great if all of us could just let loose of the wheel and take a nap. <laughs> and Chris is saying, huh? At the ideal's there. We all like the ideal. I love it, too, even though I like driving, as you know. Um, I want to keep driving my car. But, uh, but going to Arizona, I might like to put my head back for a while. So the idea of autonomous cars is great, but... Have they got that technology completely worked out yet? No, because humanity working on it is flawed and makes mistakes. Sometimes independent, autonomous churches will make mistakes. Sometimes elders will be overbearing, or they could overreach, or sometimes they underreach, and they don't lead as they should. But we do have a model. We have an ideal that we're striving towards, and we never give up on that as a church of Christ. And ultimately, we want to grow. Look at verse 6 now through verse 11, and then we'll be finished. Peter writes, Humble yourselves. Therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Verse 7, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your fellow believers throughout the whole world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever Amen. What is Peter telling the churches here? He says, one, be humble. Remember, we're rescued people, not holier-than-thou people. We're humble. We're not to be fearful. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, verse 7. Then he says, we're to be vigilant. He says, watch out for who? The devil. He walks around looking for people that he could devour. He says, resist him. So we're to be a people always on guard for Satan's influence in our personal lives and in our church life. And then he says, you stand firm in the faith. You hang on. You don't quit. You don't give up. You don't give in. And then he says, after you've suffered a little while, he himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast to the end. Our goal as a church is not to hang out till the end. We're not hanging out to the end. We're hanging in there to the end. And staying strong, staying faithful, wrestling with our smallness, being strong internally as much as we can be, being committed to each other. And Christ is going to stay with us. That's what Peter's message was to these Christians. Jesus will stay with you. You stay with Him. You stay in the boat. You stay rescued. You remember the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. You do these things that will keep you strong. And we're committed to this growth. We're committed to staying healthy, but we're committed to growing too. Our goal is not to maintain our smallness. 
because we don't want outsiders kind of messing up things. That's not our goal. Our goal is to grow. But it may look different at different times. It may not always be what we want to be. But we seek to grow. And even if numerically we're not where we want to be, we can be growing internally all the time. Peter said, take in the spiritual milk of the Word of God. We're always to do that. We're always growing individually. And that can never stop. We're not to be involved in politics. We're not to be involved in investing ourselves as a church financially. No entanglements that take away from our local identity. We're to be simply a church of Christ. And that's not a title. It's simply a description. Church means people that belong to Christ. That's our identity. Nothing more, nothing less. But this book shapes that identity all the time. We're always going into surgery. <laughs> every Sunday, obviously, but every day of the week, going into surgery. Seeing what needs to be sewn up, what needs to be fixed, what's looking good already and needs to be maintained. And if we do those things, we'll continue to be a church of Christ and be recognized as such by Christ. The worst thing in the world, as we see in Revelation 1 through 3, is to have Church of Christ on the sign, but Jesus doesn't even recognize who we are. So that's why staying with Him and staying with His Word is critical.